Hi, everyone. In this new year, if you're able, please consider becoming a sustaining donor to Glass Tire. Your monthly gift will help our nonprofit publication cover all of the artists and organizations that make up our state. You can become a sustaining donor or make a one-time gift at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Also, if you like our podcast, please consider subscribing to us and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. Uh, my name is Brandon Zeck and I am here actually today with a special guest. Uh, this is a Glass Tire writer. He's a Houston native. He's a social practice artist. And recently he wrote uh, two articles about arts funding in Texas for us, which is the topic of this podcast. Uh, welcome, Henry Sanchez. Yeah, thank you, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. Uh, we're excited to kind of dig into this. This is, just to kind of preface this, this is a much wider conversation than your two articles. If you're listening to this right now, we will link to the articles, Henry, that you wrote in this post. Um, so if you really want to get into the super or more nitty gritty, you can uh, click through, read those articles. You'll have the numbers, you'll have quotes, you'll have things like that. We're uh, maybe a little more broadly kind of taking the temperature of arts funding in Texas. This is something that I wasn't... Um, as knowledgeable about before I started working at Glass Tire and before I kind of started paying more attention to it. But uh, Henry, your articles looked at how arts funding happens, but also some of the vulnerabilities of arts funding that have been exposed by the COVID pandemic. Right. Yeah, I think the COVID pandemic is kind of frames uh, the uh, reason for the articles. Uh, we're trying to you know, we're paying attention to how different communities and localities are dealing with arts funding uh, because uh, the pandemic has really exposed um, some serious budgetary and economic vulnerabilities uh, that each place has because there isn't anybody who can go out or uh, interact or there can't be the normal sort of um, sort of economic exchange that happens when you uh, when there uh, is no social distancing. So, um, plus, not to mention the uh, the impact that that tourism has in uh, in all of the major cities, as well as even the small areas like Waco, for instance. Uh, so that has a a tremendous impact on on how each one of these places uh, funds the arts. Yeah. We're going to kind of get into the uh, the generals of funding, and then we're going to look at three specific examples. You dug into a lot more than these three cities. Um, and, of course, none of the things that we say today are fully representative of, you know, the entire situation. Uh, this is a – the arts funding is a complex thing to consider, um, but we're going to look at the, the, some of the structures of El Paso, of the city of Waco, and also of 
Houston. But before we get to that, and also before we kind of talk about the general overview of funding, Henry, you and I were talking before we started recording, and we thought it would be good to start with why funding for the arts is important. And that seems like a question that has a pretty simple answer, but mm-hmm, yeah. I, I feel like before you fully kind of look into something, you need to think about the basics of it. I'm always a big fan of that. So you were telling me about a Lawrence Wiener quote that kind of sums this up in a story that he had. Right. Lawrence Wiener, the um, uh, great conceptual artist who works with text um, and etymology and definitions, lexicons. Uh, he was interviewed a couple years ago, and um, I'm sorry if I can't remember the, the, the person who interviewed him, but he was asking the interviewer to really consider how we uh, consider arts and culture today throughout the United States. Prior to 1965, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for, uh, for people who were not in major cities to, uh, to experience a lot of the visual arts and performing arts cultures, as well as even their own cultures. Um, it was restricted for various different you know, economic and social political reasons. But after 1965, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the Great Society, um, LBJ's um, economic um, contribution to the country, that today there is not one single town, one single city, one county that does not have some kind of, of community cultural institution, some kind of place where people can go and experience, see, uh, make different forms of uh, the performing arts as well as the visual arts culture. It's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. And that is a real great sign of human progress. When we can say that I can go to most any small town around Houston and, and find some kind of um, uh, you know, community center, some cultural community center, that's, that's pretty amazing. I grew up in a suburb of Houston. I grew up in Sugarland, and I didn't know about it when I was there, but I've seen more things for the, I think it's the Sugarland Art Center, you know, even in the past five or six years than I ever had before. And the, the emergence of more performing arts and music venues and venues, you know, in Stafford, Texas, that are actually hosting ballets in addition to hosting, you know, normal concerts and things like that. I, I think that's something that if we just kind of look around us, just rings so true. Right. So we, but what happens is we kind of take it for granted that we have this at our fingertips. We have more accessibility. There's more equity than there was prior to 1965. Not that anything is perfect. Uh, we, we can see more that the technology is, is brings it to our own homes. We have it on our phones. You know, I mean, it's around us and all the time. And we can go to them all the time. They're, they're affordable or they're free. Um, and, and not having that, not being able to have that sort of aesthetic connection really shows us how important Funding for the arts are really uh, such an important part of our lives. If we didn't have that, it, it would be a, a, a very deserted kind of existence. 
I, I think that's a good segue into a quick history lesson about how this funding actually kind of came to fruition, or at least, you know, all of the different modes from which it comes. So like we mentioned at the top, a lot of communities across the state of Texas kind of have their own models um, and we'll break down, but you know, some of it is just, Henry, could you give us an overview of where it comes from? It started in the, it started in the late seventies with um, a hot tax, a hotel occupancy tax. Right, right. Bill. Well, well, there, there used to be more federal money coming down, but um, local localities found other sources of revenue, and and that was the hotel occupancy tax that was established in 1977 through the Texas State Legislature, and that allowed localities to use up to about 18 percent of of that tax to pay for things that can generate more tourism to their particular areas. But, of course, when you start interpreting what that means, that could also mean, for instance, a, uh, a, a certain performance, or it could be an exhibition, or it could be uh, some sort of a cultural center that, that, that opens up. So um, that became the basis for a lot of the localities to start funding uh, for their uh, local arts and culture. Now, every city is, uh, is different in how they fund it, and they have a different mechanism for, for doing so. So, you know, in general, most localities, I don't want to just say cities or towns, so localities can also mean counties. Most localities have a sort of a form of a cultural affairs department. Uh, it's either, it's run either, it could be a nonprofit or it could be run by the local government. It's, it's a mix of different things. So, for instance, with El Paso, it's, it's a city entity, okay? There's the Cultural Affairs and Recreation as well as the Museum and, and Cultural Arts District of El Paso, which is run by Ben Fife. In Waco... What you have is Creative Waco, which has only been in existence for five years. Creative Waco, run by Fiona Bond, is a nonprofit, but it basically serves um, uh, as programming and as a mechanism to generate funds and from various, you know, and revenue from various places uh, to have arts and culture for that whole county. So it almost serves the role as like a collecting and a granting organization. Yes, it's a, it's a bit of both. It's, it's, um, and they do a lot of programming, um, and they do it, uh, and they fund it program by program. So it's, it's, but they do not use hot money. Mm-hmm. So they, none of the taxes that are coming in for hotel occupancy or for tourism are funding the arts in Waco. And it, that's it, arts it, more it's, broadly. It's, it's musicians, it's, artists. It's not funding creative Waco, which is the main cultural arts mechanism there, you know, or uh, cultural affairs, you know, organization there. With El Paso, you have their cultural affairs and recreation, MCAD, um, which has hot money. And at the same time, there's the money from the general funds of, of El Paso. And at the same time, they do apply for, you know, grants and foundation money and things of that sort. Now, that differs from Houston. 
So Houston has uh, two different kinds of uh, of uh, organizations, and one's, one is the contractor to the other. So in Houston, we have the mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs run, run by Deborah McNulty. But they contract a nonprofit to do all of their granting from with the hot money. So that is the Houston Arts Alliance. And the CEO for that is John Abadili. So they all have different sorts of, you know, uh, entities which help, you know, uh, foster arts and culture in their areas. They are all funded differently. Uh, they have different sort of, you know, m- you know uh, funding mechanisms, whether it be revenue or whether it be applying for grants or asking for donations or whatever. Um, so they're not all the same. So that's something that, that we have a tendency to sort of generalize too much. You know, it's, it's not just all about hotel occupancy tax. Uh, one of, I can't remember if this was uh, the wording you used within your article or if it was something that you said to me before we, uh, while we were kind of prepping this podcast, but I feel like the best summation of what you just said is that there's not a one-size-fits-all model. There isn't. There's and that's, that's in terms of how uh, cities or localities or towns or whatever you want to call these areas, how, how they uh, apportion money, the places from which they draw their money, it kind of, you know, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's a city agency, whether it's a combination, it, it all differs and it all kind of depends on those locality governments. Right. Well, and it, it depends on the realities there. You know, um, you know, Waco and the county of Waco, well, you know, um, you know, people don't realize that that is, you know, recognized as sort of a, the music friendly city of, of, Texas. El Paso, um, you know, people used to just think of that as just, you know, something on the road from, you know, from one place to another, but it's, it's a major international intersection. And, um, and people there in El Paso really, really want (laughs) their arts and culture. Houston, of course, is about to be the third largest city in the United States. So, you know, you can talk about all the demands of a continually growing city like Houston, so which keeps expanding in size and in the problems that exist in Houston. So it's so there's the different social political realities, different sorts of urgencies, different kinds of communities, different demands, uh, different environments, uh, and all of that you know, has an effect on, on how they, they fund their arts and culture. Maybe moving on to one of the kind of specific examples, uh, thinking about the, the case of El Paso. And uh, Henry, maybe I should say the, the article, the two-part article that you wrote for us, the first part deals with a lot of other, uh, with cities, localities, municipalities across Texas, and the second part is more exclusively uh, Houston. So uh, you wrote about the El Paso, the, the case of El Paso in your part one article. Um, the funding structure kind of as we discussed is uh, that the Museum and Cultural Affairs Department, which is a government department, um, 
funds public art programs, artist grants, and performing and visual art events. And with a mix of uh, hotel occupancy tax money, uh, general capital projects, and revenue uh, like from granting organizations like the Texas Commission on the Arts. Um, and you, were, you wrote in your article and you were also telling me that the funding culture of El Paso, uh, at least when you were talking to the head of that department, seems very positive. Yeah, Ben Fife. Uh, so uh, Ben has you know, a very lucky problem in that uh, the change in the political culture there over the past you know, number of years uh, has uh, developed to where all of the uh, sort of council people and, the, and of course, the, the mayor really are extremely supportive. Um, he even, um, I don't know if I put this in the quote or in, in the article or not, but he said there are times where they just, they sometimes just get in the way of him being able to do his, his job. And if you think about it, one of the council members there, Peter Svartsbien, um, is an artist himself. He's a uh, MFA graduate from the School of Visual Arts. He did this uh, this international trolley, uh, El Paso trolley project, which is remarkable, and and that's the thing that got him really involved in El Paso after he moved back from New York. And um, um, I mean, come on, El Paso's got an artist under local <laughs> government. That's yeah, that's a great deal. Well, I involvement in artists, kind of political involvement is something that we'll talk about uh, once we get a little farther in this conversation, too. But, I, I mean, that's one of the ways that they're able to truly make a difference is having real representation on board. Oh, yeah. Well, that makes, that, that makes a big difference. Being able to show up, being able to have somebody there who is an expert. Um, and you've got to have those kinds of people uh, to help move the dialogue and discussion about arts funding. There's a lot of artists that work in administration. I don't think people quite realize that. A lot of people who have either been artists or curators or what have you, you know, um, they work in uh, administration for museums and nonprofits as well as cultural affairs departments for different localities. And, uh, and, that's how they begin to learn about how things work. Not everybody has that experience, of course, but, every, uh, but it, it's helpful to have artists there who understand what it's like to have an existence where you're very much dependent upon you know, certain grants uh, or certain opportunities uh, or certain venues. Um, so making sure that, you know, um, that there is a, uh, a real function to these uh, different departments with an artist there providing advice or in some cases like in El Paso, uh, serving as a, you know, as an actual elected official makes a difference. El, El Paso was going along with this model. And then, uh, of course, COVID hit in March. Uh, the city shut down and there were furloughs and layoffs, some of which are permanent. Um, but the main problem was that the museum and cultural affairs department was facing a budget reduction uh, that included hotel occupancy tax revenue that was reduced uh, by about half. You know, the, 
back to it just in case you need a refresher. The whole problem with hotel and occupancy taxes, it's taxes on hotel occupancy. <laughs> so Well, it's exactly what yeah. it says it is. Yeah. yeah. So if if people aren't coming to hotels and renting rooms, then that tax money isn't being generated. So then all of a sudden there is shortfalls and some grants either, you know, there might be problems fulfilling promise or we'll get into that in a second. Um, but that's where that money comes from. And that's the heart of a, a fair amount of arts funding in Texas. Um, so with that, the city kind of forecast a reduction, but Henry El Paso was able to kind of compensate it seemed in a number of ways. Well, they, yeah, well they had, they compensated because the city is so supportive that they, that they dipped into their general funds to try to make sure that, um, you know, some of the museums could stay open or at least in a, some sort of, you know, way where it would be safe. Um, when you think about a museum, it's not just the art that's on, on, on display. It's also, uh, you know, we're talking about a lot of employees who are also creatives and artists themselves. And, you know, and if they don't have jobs, well, you know, how are they going to, how are they going to survive through this pandemic? And El Paso is one of the hardest cities being hit by the uh, virus in, in the whole country. I mean, it's just really tragic. Put the art funding thing aside. When Ben Fife says that it's a juggernaut, I mean, it is affecting everything. Yes, it's affecting arts funding. Yes, it's affecting their Dia de los Muertos um, festival. Um, yes, they had to furlough people and limit all sorts of different programs. People are people are hurting. People are really, really, you know, they're dying. It's heartbreaking, you know, when you think about it. We shouldn't try to abstract arts funding away from our daily lives. We really depend upon it. Um, ben um, was telling me that, you know, this is how we connect. We have to have these things in our lives in order to, you know, feel human. And when we, we don't have it, oh, you know, we're aching. You know, we really miss it. And we have to have something to uh, revive ourselves, to affirm ourselves, to feel, to feel and emote freely, you know, without being hurt. So COVID, yes, it's affecting the hot revenue. It's, but at the end but of the day, it's affecting that because it's, it's affecting people. It's affecting everybody, not it's affecting people physically, psychologically, internally, you know, um, so, um, this is why I wrote the article because, um, it's, it's just, it's under the title arts funding, but it, it really should be human funding, human funding in Texas. That's what, you know, I guess you could, I could retitle it, but you know, it's glass tire is an arts journal. So we have to call it arts funding because it's, you know, I had to outline what's happening there. So while we're talking about people, let's take a second and talk about uh, Waco and move on to the Waco example, because there are a number of artists in Waco who were uh, affected by the pandemic and by uh, possible shortfalls of, of money, but also one of the 
uh, components of Waco is musicians and performing artists. Um, and we mean that in the broadest sense of the word and people who, you know, might not be able to sell paintings on Instagram or might not be able to kind of compensate for some of that lost uh, revenue or the lost opportunity or the ability to just interact. Yeah, I, I think as I said before, you know, Waco was designated a, a music-friendly city. So when Creative Waco is normally functioning, they have an, a, a number of different sort of visual arts festivals. Um, they, they do fund different sorts of art, visual arts, you know, sort of programs and projects, but they do uh, help out the, uh, the music and performing industry there. And um, uh, that is one of the areas in arts and culture which is, is really devastated. I mean, because we can't, we can't all gather in a place to watch a play or listen to music like we have before. Um, it's too dangerous. Never mind that the fact that they just can't make a living. They can't do what they want to do. I, to, to simplify it, okay, well, if someone were a painter, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you some, some things to paint on, but we're kind of running out on things to paint with. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you can practice your instrument in your house all you want, but that's <laughs> not going to yeah. get you a career or, or, right. or fulfill you in the same way if you're used to playing for people and getting that energy back. Yeah, well, this is the, the dilemma with uh, musicians and performing artists is that how do, you, how, do you, how do you do what you're supposed to do because it's a calling, and how do you, how do you show it? How do you display it? How do you perform it when you can't do it in front of anybody? And, you know, there's different, you know, um, people who have thought, well, you know, maybe we can do it on a Zoom and things of that sort. But it's, it's, not, it's not creating the same kind of connection. I mean, Waco has been pretty innovative in how they are trying to sustain some of their musicians. Um, you know, they even uh, created like the sort of um, throwback of the old TV program. Where I don't know if you remember, maybe I'm revealing my age, the Grand Ole Opry, uh, even the Lawrence Welk show, uh, you know, where you could you'd be watching different kinds of musical acts. And uh, Waco managed to uh, work with a TV affiliate, uh, and they had local musicians hired. They hired, Creative Waco actually hired them for the TV affiliate to uh, to present different you know genres of music. That's a you know pretty remarkable thing. Um, so they were you know Fiona Bond, who's the uh, the executive director of Creative Waco, was really thinking on her feet here. Um, so it, it, in many ways, the sort of pandemic and the, the economic, you know, emergency, uh, in a way gave her an opportunity to really think creatively about how we can work our way around the fact that there isn't money for these things. I think one of the reasons they also kind of were able to look at this a little differently and had a different kind of challenge because as you mentioned earlier, Creative Waco uh, actually isn't 
funded directly by hot taxes. No, they don't use that money. Yeah, so they're funded by the city through general funds and appropriations. And, of course, that isn't to say that their funding might not be in jeopardy in the future, but they didn't kind of see that immediate downturn that some other organizations did. So they... Well, they did. They, they did, did because, I mean, they... Um, um, well, for one, you know, there's uh, a nationwide, a global emergency. So the, you know, a lot of the funds were not going to be as forthcoming as before. Um, they do like uh, they do rely on on private and corporate donations, um, but um, you know, of course, they those private and individuals and corporations have to justify it and. And if you consider that, you know, they're under some sort of financial strain, you know, that money might not all be forthcoming either. So, um, so there's, it's, it has different kinds of challenges. And I think that um, being able to understand that if they relied on just one source, um, that it would, um, it would really devastate everything that they've done. So um, maybe that's a better way of saying what I was what I was trying to communicate that it wasn't just reliant on hot funds. So then there's so then the uh, impact it, it will still be felt, but it wasn't this immediate drop off. Yeah, I mean it wasn't um, it wasn't shut down per se. Um, if I can use that word. Um, liberally, but um, their, their funding sources are diversified. And, and because of so, um, they're able to compensate and, uh, for the lack of funding in one area. So, um, yeah, I think that's, a, that's an important lesson um, that I learned, uh, certainly in doing the two articles, is that if you have just one source of funding, it can really adversely impact, you know, a locality uh, in such a way that um, you're going to be forced to have to think again on how arts and culture can exist. You know, it's just, uh, it, it just can't exist through one pipeline. You know, you know, it needs other it needs other veins. You know, we have a circulatory system. We have a lot of different arteries and veins here. It's not just one. So yeah, and it's a system. It's it's a generally you know we we have to look at it as a system. You know, and I think it's interesting that you frame it that way because from your reporting that I've read about Creative Waco, they their approach to the to COVID and to trying to give their constituents. Uh, multiple avenues of ways to kind of help themselves a little bit. Um, like they, they did issue some grants directly to artists and creatives, but they also set up, of course, this goes against the idea that, you know, you can't sell the online performance, but they, they set up an online market to try and help people who, you know, were creatives that actually produced some sort of object uh, to be able to sell on that. That like, that's a, that's something that I hadn't seen from a lot of kind of these overarching um, managerial organizations because it's not necessarily their role much well, of the yeah, time. Well, yeah, the, the scale, the scale of, 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 of Waco is different than the scale, let's say, of, of Houston. So um, 
having an online market can really have a positive economic impact in someone's, you know, pocket, some artist's pocket. Now, of course, there is the CARES money that came this summer, which is uh, the coronavirus money, the stimulus. And, you know, quite a, you know, there was a good portion of it that went to uh, places that were uh, 500,000 uh, in population or less. Um, but there was a lot of restrictions. Uh, there was deadlines. But they were managing to use El Paso and El Waco, for example, uh, to make sure that there was some kind of relief for uh, for artists. So even though we they couldn't do programming, there could be um, you know some kind of mini grants or uh, you know relief for um, you know uh, housing or um, there is just there is at least of some amount of money to to sort of serve as a kind of a safety net some kind of safety net for the arts and culture there. So that's that's very important to, to point out. Um, now, it's unfortunate that this last round that there is no money for... Those smaller communities. Smaller, smaller communities or, or local and, and state government. Okay, well, that's got to be fixed when the next administration comes around. There, there, you've just got to be able to do that. You know, you got to be able to... to uh, to foster, uh, you know, the arts and cultural uh, communities uh, during this time, you just can't just let it go. You know, I mean, it's 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 not just the stuff we see; it's the lives that that uh, depend upon it, and that's all of our lives. Well, and uh, with that, let's move on to Houston. Right. Okay. Yeah, Houston. I, I feel like this is as good a time as any to mention uh, that both Glass Tire and right now Henry, <laughs> uh, we were both uh, recipients of 2020 Houston Arts Alliance uh, Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs uh, grants. So, you know, we can speak a little personally as to uh, uh, this process, but also we're going to we're going to take a, the kind of overall uh, the overview like we've spoken about to the other cities. But just a little just a little disclosure to make everyone aware. I, I should also say before we jump fully into the Houston conversation that there's no way by the end of this podcast or by, you know, taking another hour that we could even begin to thoroughly investigate um, Houston because it's it is complex and it's a big city, but we're going to uh, give you as much of a tight little overview as we can. If you want the full story on this, uh, read part two of Henry's article, which is on Glass Tire and uh, linked to in the post of this podcast on Glass Tire. So with that, um, the basic, basic overview of Houston's arts funding structure is that the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs for Houston, which is government, uh, contracts the Houston Arts Alliance to administer its grants. This grant money comes from hotel occupancy taxes, um, which is the primary resource for the city of Houston's art funding. So another source of Houston art funding uh, is Civic Arts Program, uh, which is like a percentage for art on buildings and capital projects and things like that, which is how we get... Uh, things like the city of Houston's public art collection and sculptures uh, in the public square and things like that. Um, 
one of the complications around some of this funding is that very little of it is actually recession-proof. So the way the funding also works is generally um, it's based on projections. So you're awarded a grant, and then that money kind of comes into the city real-time as it's being given to you, which means that the money isn't already in the bank. So there's a contract, which means that when COVID happened, uh, the funds weren't immediately in the bank. So then we saw fewer, uh, we saw less tourism. So then those funds dropped drastically. Yeah, they did. Um, look, part of the reason for funding it on current revenue was some issues that that arose during um, the HAA's previous incarnation and um, which had to do with uh, how HAA was reserving money. Um, so, I mean, th- this that that's all gets very complicated about Houston art history. But we're looking at mainly what's happening now and how COVID... Right. So what happened was, is of course, because Houston is so dependent upon hotel and occupancy tax that it really, really impacted... Uh, a lot of small arts organizations and a lot of the artists who um, who had been awarded grants um, early in the year. And um, even though, you know, each artist and arts organization signed a contract which says that, you know, there might be shortfalls depending upon, you know, the revenue stream of the hotel occupancy in the contract literally it's like the second paragraph and that normally means that there might be a small percentage fluctuation not that much of a difference you know in in a normal economic climate but nobody has foreseen this pandemic which is not going to end in, until well into 21 and um, so we're talking about a, a major crack uh, in how Houston sees its arts funding, arts and culture funding. And um, even Deborah McNulty said that, you know, there's no such thing as a recession-proof revenue. But everyone is, is, is trying to rethink this. You know, how we, can they, uh, you know, reformulize arts funding in, in, in Houston? And um, so there's ideas that are floating around, which may involve, you know, corporate and uh, philanthropic sources. Um, there might be even um, ideas of finding revenue somewhere else. Uh, and certainly uh, changing uh, certain st- uh, state statutes. Um, at, look, at the end of the day, you know, local government, is really hobbled by the state government. They, they have they continue to put restrictions on how local government uses uh, hotel occupancy tax and how much of that they use for their arts and culture. They there's a real expectation from uh, the leaders in the state government that we all have to subsist on some sort of austerity you know, uh, you know, uh, economic philosophy to, to run our governments. And that 
continues to uh, to hurt arts and culture. Well, and a, a part of that also is the the intricacies and details and restrictions around funds that were subsequently issued after uh, COVID began and with the CARES Act and things like that, like some uh, funding that was given to Houston as well as to other cities, uh, it was earmarked so that it couldn't necessarily make up the shortfalls in some of the contracts that were already issued. There are certain restrictions and regulations on how, you know, taxpayer money is used. So for the CARES money, we're talking about relief money. We're talking about stimulus money. So that has to be for relief. You, you, they couldn't use that money. It was new opportunities. They couldn't use it to create arts grants or to fulfill the prior, you know, uh, contracts uh, that arts artists and arts organizations signed in order to get their grants. So that's a you know that's one issue. But um, you know, but looking towards the future outside of the pandemic, um, you know, Houston has to, and Houston artists, not just MOCA or Houston Arts Alliance, but Houston artists have to start really getting involved in how we can all work together uh, to find uh, a new formula for, uh, for funding the arts and culture here in Houston. We, we can't just expect it to come from the, uh, the director of the mayor's office of cultural affairs. She doesn't hold the purse strings. The elected officials hold the, pur- hold the purse strings. Um, mind you, yes, Houston is hobbled by, you know, uh, this a, a budget cap, which passed back in the, what, the early 90s or something like that. Um, and, uh, which uh, basically caps the amount of revenue that that Houston can uh, can raise, and so therefore uh, everything is affected by that. Meaning, you know, emergency personnel, you know, you name it. Um, you know that that needs to change. But obviously, um, you know, there need there could be some contributions from the Harris County to uh, the to the Houston Arts Alliance. Yeah, this is one of the things you brought up in your article, that currently uh, Harris County hotel occupancy tax money isn't given to Houston. No, be, and and one of the complications of that is um, Harris County is, is bigger than Houston. <laughs> and Harris County covers a lot of small towns, Paraland, places like that, you know. Um, uh, you so it, it is, and they, they have their districts, and, you know, uh, the way they're, uh, they're, they use that money is they spread out over a large area. And, uh, of course, their commissioners have a, a certain amount of discretion. So it, it's how that happens, I'm not really quite sure. But there certainly needs to be have a, a conversation on how Harris County can contribute to HAA because that's Houston is part of the county as well, uh, but Houston doesn't sit entirely within Harris County. It's parts of Houston that are outside of Harris County. So it's these are complicated issues, but um, we have to learn. We have a le- bit of a learning curve, but we have to learn how how these things work. 
Well, and there already is a group of artists right now that have started an organization uh, called Arts Accountability Houston, who have kind of put into motion not the Harris County Houston dialogue, but the dialogue of Houston's constituents and artists with uh, the granting organizations and with MOCA and with kind of all of the stakeholders trying to have that conversation and open it up about what an equitable, what a more equitable and a, and a possibly more secure system could look like. A more secure um, funding source and uh, a, a, an arts and culture that is more, um, more thoroughly funded uh, throughout the city. And um, they, they just started in September and um, and it started because uh, the uh, some of the grantees of this year were not going to be seeing the balance of their grants because the hotel occupancy revenues is completely down. And um, so it started with that and the fact that you know they needed some you know uh, some direction and uh, they needed some. Um, guidance they needed to uh they needed to understand you know how could they could fulfill their contract if they can't do anything during a pandemic and you know and uh and they can't afford to do it if they don't have the full funding they were unsatisfied with the options that were presented to them so they sought to open it up and, and since then you know uh haa and moca have 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 provided uh more flexibility in the contracts so that way, um, arts, small arts organizations, festivals, you know, artists can uh, have a, a, a number of options on how they can uh, fulfill their contracts or get fully or get as much funding as possible, uh, depending upon what that revenue is going to look like next year. But it also means a reduction in next year's, uh, you know, grants. Uh, which is which is sad because this is you know it's um, we there's no there might be some light at the end of the tunnel but it, the pandemic is just gonna last a while and um, but those changes were made now this accountability group is is having you know substantive discussions with uh, the head of Mocha and uh, HAA to be constructive. To come up with ideas, where can we find it? Where can we get it? What do we need to change? What do we would need to advocate for? You know, what laws do we need to look at? Um, so that to me, I, that's a very positive outcome. Um, uh, artists should be more involved. You know, if there's one good thing to come out of this, it's it's the fact that people are getting more engaged and that people are taking more of an interest and taking the time to figure out this bureaucracy of how all of these things work together because you know it's it's not a thing that you learn overnight but the more you focus on it and the more attention you put into it and the more conversations you have with the people who are involved in it who it, you know their their job is essentially to help this process along and i'm sure everyone involved would like more arts funding for houston because it would just make the city even more vibrant well i you know that's what I do, a lot of my artwork is about, you know, social and civic engagement. Um, so I encourage as many artists as possible to really uh, understand what's going on, to be involved, to be part of the dialogue and conversation on how, uh, 
you know, uh, we, we govern ourselves and how we fund ourselves. Uh, it gives us agency. It shows that we're part of, we can be part of, of, of positive change in a system that we don't quite understand. And um, we can look to find ways to change it, which will, will suit, uh, you know, the current, you know, situations that we live in, that live under. You know, if we want to see any kind of silver lining in, this, in these really very difficult times is that um, I think more and more people are going to be uh, more intellectually involved, more civically involved, um, and um, we'll all educate ourselves, and we can collaborate more. You know, um, you know, we'll be able to see that our elected officials, the people who are head of these uh, different cultural affairs departments, actually are supportive, and they're not the enemy. You know, um, and we we can we can help them. Uh, they need to understand that, of course, artists are constituents. You know, the money that artists get for funding does not go in some empty pocket. It goes towards hiring this fabricator or this person to help you out with uh, the sets or, you know, or productions or what have you. Um, artists are businesses. You know, we buy things. We're part of the economic stimulus of, of, of Houston and Harris County and as well as all the other places in Texas. I think that's a good place to leave it. If you, the listener, uh, want more information about anything we talked about, please go on Glass Tire and read both of Henry's articles. Um, they're very well reported. We're so happy, Henry, that you took the time to write them for us and uh, also that you took time to come talk to us for the podcast. No, thanks a lot, Brandon. It was it was a real pleasure to, to write the articles and to get to know everybody around the state. So thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks so much. And uh, if you're listening to this and you feel comfortable, go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2021.